I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1 this morning. And I want to tell you, uh, and those missionaries that are here, uh, they would tell you, we don't take your prayer lightly. Uh, when we've been on the field, we've been over there, it is the prayers of people that hold us up. And I honestly, truly believe with all my heart, it makes a difference. It really, really does. Um, and having to be evacuated, you know that there are times like that where you depend on God. And uh, we've been through situations like that. It took a group of Romanians into uh, Lesbos, Greece. We were working the refugee camp there on a night that um, uh, it broke out into a riot. And we were trying to, to get out and had to escape through. And there was a moment where we were given plan A, plan B, and plan C for evacuation, and all three of those were closed up. And uh, we thought, well, this is not good. And we knew we just had to depend on prayer. We just prayed, said, God, you've got to help us. And we knew others were praying for us. And uh, one of the refugees that I had gotten to know who speaks English, he said, you guys come with me. And the place they told us to absolutely avoid was the front gate, because that's where it was the worst. And he said, let's go to the front gate. We're like, you got to be kidding me. And so he's, no, 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 just it'll work out. So, I mean, at this point, it's either that or where the fighting was getting worse. And so we went with him to the front gate and here are these angry people yelling at the, you know, at the police outside. They've got it barricaded. And they're like, hey, these are the guys that have been giving us food and helping us all week. And I'm like, oh, hey, these guys, yeah, let's make room. You know, just like smiling at us. And then they look at the camera, you know, and they smile at us. We walk right on out the front gate. It's like, thank you, Jesus. And, uh, and then it was, uh, we went, we traveled home the next day, not because we were afraid to be there, but that literally was our last day of 10 to be there. And we found out, we saw pictures in the news the next day, the whole place had been burned down. All the tents and everything had been a mess that night. And so we just praise God for his provision. Prayer does make a difference. And we thank you for the years that you've prayed for us. And then when I think of Colossians in this chapter, Paul is writing this group of people and he's telling them, yeah, I, once I heard about you, I really kicked up my prayer life for you. Now, if somebody says that to you, do you take that as a compliment? Now, you should. Those of you that said yes and amen, you know what it's like to depend on God. And those missionaries who say, somebody says, I've been praying for you. Somebody came up to me today and said, you know, we have a bunch of missionaries. I have it running through on my app. And that's why I pray for every day. And he says, and look, today, your name's on the list and you're here. And so I know people are praying for us. To me, that thrills my soul. But somebody walks up to you and says, brother, I'm praying for you. Your first response usually isn't, well, thank you. It's like, why? What'd you hear? And Paul is writing to the church at Colossae to say, I'm praying for you. But he doesn't want to be misunderstood as to why. And so he begins the book like this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae. Not only a compliment, but a doctrinal statement. And one of the things that amazed me about the book of Colossians when I've gone through it this time is the amount of 
theological respect that Paul has for his hearers in this book. And here's why. We're going to see it in a moment. But he says some deep theological truths, and he just tosses it out there like a reminder, like, you know what I'm talking about. Where when he talks about them, let's say, to the Corinthian church, he says it and says, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. And I I get a sense from reading this book that Paul had a respect for the saints at Colossae, for their maturity, and for their growth and what they had become. So he says, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, Watch this, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Two things that Paul said he heard about them. Now, was Paul in Colossae? Was he at that church and said, this is what you told me about yourself? No, he's somewhere else, and he says the information about you, your reputation has gone out and reached me over here, and here is what I'm hearing about you. First, your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want to be known as a church that has faith in Jesus Christ? And I want you to know, you do have that reputation, When I have been in Romania, we have 28 churches that support us. Some of them have never contacted me at all since we've been on the field in 10 years. There are about four or five that keep regular contact with us, and we absolutely know that they are praying for us, and this is one of them. And I've used some of the things that you have done for us as missionaries on the field as examples to our Romanian church. This is how you treat God's uh, missionaries and God's people and God's ministry. We've talked about the faith that people have. They're known for their faith in Jesus Christ, but also their love for God's people. Do you see the vertical and horizontal in this statement? The vertical, they have faith in God, but it also goes horizontal, love for God's people. Now, I've talked to some people, generally church people, who say that church people are sometimes hard to love. Don't giggle too loud. Everybody would be wondering, what are they thinking of me? But i got to tell you something. I've been in a lot of churches And I love God's people. They are wonderful people. There's an accusation that God's people are sometimes judgmental, and really those people that say that are generally, not always, generally in sin and don't want to be told they're wrong. They're really saying God is judgmental, and he has the right to be, by the way. But God's people are not. And we've gone through things with our family, and we're open about that. Our daughter, Jessica, when she came back to the States, wandered from doing what she should do for about a year. During that time, she ended up pregnant. She called us on Easter Sunday after she didn't know, but our whole family was fasting instead of feasting for Easter. 
And we were praying for her, and she called and said, Dad, I've made a mess of things. I really need to turn this around. And she has. And now she's actually helping other girls who've gotten in the same situation. And um, it's been really a wonderful thing. God has done so much in her life. She is a spokesperson for the Crisis Pregnancy Center uh, that helped her out. And, uh, and we actually have the, our grandbaby from her, Bella, is with us this weekend here in the nursery because uh, she's with her sister on a little mini vacation. She's working so hard as a single mom, uh, works a full-time job, going to school full-time, graduates this May, involved with the church. We're just so proud of her. And that has been the response everywhere we've gone. We have never, from the time we were praying for her before her repentance till now, never heard one word of rebuke and condemnation against us or against her for the situation. It's always been, we're praying for her. You know, and when she turned around, amen, praise God, what an encouragement. God's people are loving and forgiving and compassionate. Don't let somebody, don't let Satan convince you otherwise. But that's what the church of Colossae was known for, their faith in God and their love for the people. And Paul is encouraging them, starts off by saying, the message of that has reached me. Your reputation is being made known. You're an example to other churches of loving each other and having faith in Jesus Christ. And then he tells them a little bit about that faith and love. And I really wish I had time to go through a couple chapters of the book because this theme of faith and love, faith and love, keep coming back up. It's a recurring theme through the book. When you read it next time, look for that. You'll be amazed at how often that comes up. But in verse 5, it tells us where that faith and love come from. It says it's the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Where does this faith and love come from? From the gospel message and its effect on our life. From the hope we have of eternal life living in heaven when all of this gets washed away. And I don't know about you, I can't wait for it all to get washed away. And I don't mean literally with more rain. My goodness, if we had the rain this year. But I mean when we're done with this. I can't wait. And because we have that hope that comes through the gospel message, we are freed to have faith in God because of what we know is coming, and love for God's people, even when they mess up, because we mess up and we want them to love us anyway too. And so when we understand the gospel, God forgives. He still calls sin, sin. He's not saying sin doesn't matter. He's saying sin matters. But you can repent, and God forgives, and continues to love, and heals, and takes you the next step, and makes things in your life more sure. Maybe not all the money and finances, things for sure, but your life and your hope in the future is 100% sure. You know you're forgiven. And we have that blessed hope. And that frees us up to be more loving and caring with one another and to love each other and have faith in God. He says, the faith and love that you have that has reached, your reputation has reached all over the world comes because of your confident hope in the gospel 
message. I love the way he takes it from this personal, it's the true message you heard about. And then in verse 6, it's the message that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit. In what same way? What fruit? Faith and love. The same gospel that worked faith and love in you it says, let me read it again, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Did you know that God's gospel does not only work in Battle Creek? And in the same way, it can produce faith and love in you. I've seen that in Romania. The same gospel in a completely different culture. People that think way different than you do. And yet the same gospel produces in them the ability to have faith in the future because of what God has planned for them and love for God's people. And from Romania, we've been in many countries that surround Romania, taking the gospel with Romanians on missions trips. We've been into Turkey and Bulgaria and Ukraine and Serbia and Czech Republic and Moldova and Georgia, not the state, but the country. And we've seen God's gospel have the same effect everywhere. Isn't that amazing? And he's telling them, this reputation you have has gone out, but it's not limited to you. It's spreading because of the gospel message. And you are an example that it can happen. And he's encouraging them with this. In verse 7, he kind of, I love the way he, he takes it personalized to them, takes to the world, and then narrows it down to an individual where he says, you learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant. Aren't you thankful for Epiphras? And they're all going, yes, I'm glad that individual came and told me so I could have the gospel message and understand it. And he's, he's narrowing it down. And I think he's doing that to remind them how important it is for you to be that Epiphras to somebody else. Wouldn't it be sad to get to heaven someday and say, I'm glad I'm here, but nobody else is... Like, glad that I shared the gospel with them. I'd rather somebody come running up to me and, Tom, 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 I give Jesus all the credit, yes, but I'm so glad you shared the gospel with me. What, what a chance to rejoice with them over Jesus Christ. Together. Be somebody's epiphras. Tell them about the gospel message. And that's what Paul is doing. He's reminding them. He's making it very personal. Now we get to verse 9. And he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. So instead of just saying, Yeah, I heard about you and I'm praying for you, really, what for? He says, Let me tell you something. I'm not going to condemn you. 
I'm not going to tell you you're not doing enough. I'm not here to beat you over the head. In fact, I'm here to encourage you and say you're doing a great job and your reputation has gone out. But from the moment I heard that your reputation was good and that you were strong and that you're setting an example and you have great faith in God and you're demonstrating love for God's people, that is when I really began to pray for you. Because first of all, when you're doing well, who else notices that? Well, Jesus notices it and he's happy. But the enemy notices too. And he's going to try to rip that joy from you. I wish I had time. I just preached a sermon series on peace. I wish I had time to go through that with you. After hearing the songs this morning, I almost, if I'd had my notes with me, I'd have switched gears. Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, is telling them, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm thinking, all right, now Jesus, how long has he existed? Forever. All right, so he has a long history of, let's call them life events, things that he's been through. Like creation, Jesus was there, yes? The fall of the angels? The sin of man? The Tower of Babel? The flood? He had great events, he had sad events. But he has an eternal number of events because he's without time. And yet, when you take all of an unlimited amount of life events, I think the saddest one for him was the day he had to take the sin of the whole world of all time and carry it on himself. And on that saddest day of his history, which is eternal, he not only had peace, he had enough to share. How do you go through difficult times and have not only peace, but enough peace to go around? And Jesus did. And some of the answers are in John 14, and I don't want to preach it to you today because I would get sidetracked. I'm already getting sidetracked, can you tell? We need to get back to, where was I in Colossians? But um, the whole point is that Paul said, for this reason, I want to pray for you. Now, let's see why. For this reason, verse 9, I've not, uh, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God, now here's his prayer, to fill you, to do what? To add to? To add to the knowledge of Jesus, but to just give you a, a morsel more? To fill you up. Did they have some of the knowledge of God? Absolutely. They had enough that it was encouraging them to, to be examples. And he didn't just say, I pray that you will continue in what you're doing. He didn't say that. He said, I, I'm praying once I heard how good you're doing. Get this that you'll want more. Now, I tend to think, and I don't mean this as an insult to you or to me or to the churches, but I don't know if we have the same reputation they had. Some, yes, yeah, some good, and, but they were known. 
throughout the known world of that time, I would tend to think that they might have actually had a little more commitment and maturity than the average Christian today. And yet Paul looks at them and he's not rebuking them. He's saying, you have not arrived yet. He's not judging them. He's saying, you've done a great job. You have a great reputation, but don't stop there. You think the walk with God is good now. There's more. You think he's been good to you so far. You ain't learned nothing yet. I mean, that's what he's trying to tell them. And he says, look, for this reason, we haven't stopped praying. We continually ask God, listen, to fill you up with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That, my friends, is a deep theological statement. And he doesn't dwell on it. He assumes they know what he's talking about. I'm not going to make that same assumption. I want to show you what Paul is talking about. Let's go back a couple pages to 1 Corinthians in chapter 2. I really wish I had time again for... This is the benefit of being a pastor. We get to study all this. You only get to hear a part of what we study. So I have to pick and choose. Um... But all, even chapter 1, he's talking about the difference of Christ's power and his wisdom and the world's wisdom. And, but I want to narrow in on chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, he's now explaining that statement to the Corinthians. I mean, he's making the same statement that I want you to be full of the knowledge of the wisdom of God that comes from the Spirit. But to the Corinthian church, he's going to go into detail what he means and why this is important. I think the Colossi church already got it. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Because they're coming to nothing. Right? That means the leaders, the wisdom of this age, what is common sense, is not the wisdom that Jesus had. Let me keep reading. Verse 7. No, we declare God's wisdom. Now look at the statement. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Why doesn't the world know the wisdom of God? Is it simply because they won't accept it? Brothers and sisters, it goes deeper than that. God hid it from them. They don't even have it. Oh, God wouldn't hide the truth. When Jesus rose from the dead, and he's walking down the road to Emmaus with two disciples, did he tell them who he was? No. And what were they sad about? That Jesus is dead. Oh, really, am I? And he didn't reveal to them. Instead, what does he do? He says, well, I know you're sad, but let me point to what the law and the prophets said. 
And when he pointed them back to Scripture and described what had happened with what had been prophesied, before they knew it was him, they go, he's alive! They believe the Scriptures. And then he says, you know, as an added blessing, let me reveal to you and open your eyes so you can see who I am. There are times God hides something to reveal it at the right moment for a purpose. And here he said, I've got all this wisdom that works, but I've not given it to them. I've hidden it from them. Why? So that when I give it to you, people will see the difference of the way they think and the way you think. And that's for our glory. Glory. That means it's going to make us look better. Now, it may not necessarily look better in their eyes. In fact, what do they call us? Fools. They say it looks like foolishness. But they can call it foolishness until it works and theirs doesn't. It is for our glory. He only gives it to us. Now watch this. Um, none of the, verse 8 now. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood the wisdom that comes from God, they would never have made the choices that they made. For it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. And no human mind can conceive the things that God has prepared for those who love them. It's a truth hidden. The hope we have in the future, man can't comprehend. Verse 10, these things, these are the things God has revealed to us, where? By his spirit. Now that's starting to tie into what we are learning in Colossians, but hold on. He's talking to the Corinthians. He needs to explain what he means by that. And so let's look at this explanation. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Name one of those things he's talking about. I don't think we can. Because as deep as we know about God, that's not even deep when it comes to God yet. But the Spirit searches the deep things about God. And it goes on. For who knows a person's thoughts except the own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. How much does the Spirit of God know about God? Everything, even the way he thinks. Look, I've tried to figure out how God thinks. And I give up. Just ask Job. And his friends, if they know how God thinks. I just believe he's doing what's right, and I let God think the way God thinks. The Spirit searches the things of God and knows even how God thinks. Now watch this. This is the comparison. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, 
Look, they're not closely related, but just slightly better if it's from the Spirit. There is an opposite of the way the world thinks and the way God thinks. They are foolishness to each other. It says, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. That person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot, what? Cannot, is incapable of understanding them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, listen to this, have the mind of Christ. Who knows the thoughts of God? The Spirit. Who is the Spirit in Christ? The Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit of God, who knows the thoughts of God, is the Spirit that is in the mind of Christ, so that Christ knows all, and what Spirit is it that teaches us? The same Spirit. What excuse do we have for not being a little bit more wise than we are? Now remember, I'm not saying that as a rebuke. No more than Paul was to the Colossians. He says, you're doing great. But when I realized how good you were doing, that you have a taste of it, that you're headed the right direction, I wanted to start praying for you that you would be filled up with the knowledge of his will that comes from the Spirit. Simple statement in Colossians, but a deep theological truth that I am ever so grateful for. Now, why do we want to be filled up with the knowledge of his will? Look what it says. And back in Colossians now, chapter 1 and verse 9, where he says, I've continued to pray for you. It says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Big statement, and he keeps moving. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in a few more good ways. Is that what it says? In every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, which by the way, we're going to need living with the people who don't get it. And why be patient with them? So we can be at peace? Or because those are enemies that need to be won over. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Another deep theological statement I don't have time to go into. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Chapter 2, I just want to mention this. Well, first of all, let me, chapter 1, verse 26, when he's talking about um, 
Uh, and I want to end with this portion of Scripture. He says, now I rejoice. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And, I, and this is a, a little tough to just follow the first time you read it, I think. This is, uh, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. When you first read that, like, what could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Did he not complete it? We'll get to that in a moment. But as he explains that, he says, For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become a servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So again, he's saying, you have some, but there's more. Don't stop yet. Verse 26, look at this and see how he explains what I just said from 1 Corinthians. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Isn't that wonderful? We have that hidden truth of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of what is to come. And what he's saying here in these verses, when I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh, I fill up, I, I, I bring it to completion. In my flesh, I bring to completion what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the body, which is the church. He's not saying that, that Christ didn't finish his work. Did Jesus Christ finish his sufferings? And what was his suffering? On the cross, so that our sins could be forgiven and washed away. He set the example. He set the way that it takes suffering to benefit people. And he says, what I rejoice in the fact is that I get to step into his shoes and continue that needed suffering for the benefit of others. This is a wisdom that doesn't make sense to the world, but it makes complete sense to those who know Jesus Christ. That we put others first, not ourselves. So church, my challenge to you today is if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, and you've walked with Him your life, I don't care how old you are, and you've increased in your knowledge of Him, and you have a good reputation for being a church that has faith in God and a love for His people, my challenge to you today is don't stop there. And I don't mean it as a rebuke. It ought to be an encouragement because what is happening here happens all over the world. The gospel is that powerful. And you can trust it and you can believe it. And my challenge to you is, God, open up the floodgates what else do you want from us? What else can we do for you? We want to be a part of it. But I also want to say this. If there's somebody today who has come in and doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, can I tell you, today is the day to make that decision. Because he loves you. And he's waiting for you. <coughs> I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. And I'd like to lead in prayer. 
First, I'd like to lead in prayer those who are not sure of your salvation. If you died today, you're not sure that you would spend eternity in heaven. When it talks about this faith in God and love and the hope for the future, you just don't feel that you have that same hope. And some of this just doesn't make sense to you because the Spirit of God is not there and you want the Spirit of God. I want to tell you, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1 this morning. And I want to tell you, uh, and those missionaries that are here, uh, they would tell you, we don't take your prayer lightly. Uh, when we've been on the field, we've been over there, it is the prayers of people that hold us up. And I honestly, truly believe with all my heart, it makes a difference. It really, really does. Um, and having to be evacuated, you know that there are times like that where you depend on God. And uh, we've been through situations like that. It took a group of Romanians into uh, Lesbos, Greece. We were working the refugee camp there on a night that um, uh, it broke out into a riot. And we were trying to, to get out and had to escape through. And there was a moment where we were given plan A, plan B, and plan C for evacuation. And all three of those were closed up. And uh, we thought, well, this is not good. And we knew we just had to depend on prayer. We just prayed, said, God, you've got to help us. And we knew others were praying for us. And uh, one of the refugees that I had gotten to know who speaks English, he said, you guys come with me. And the place they told us to absolutely avoid was the front gate because that's where it was the worst. And he said, let's go to the front gate. And we're like, you've got to be kidding me. And so he said, no, 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 just it'll work out. So, I mean, at this point, it's either that or where the fighting was getting worse. And so we went with them to the front gate and here are these angry people yelling at the, you know, at the police outside. They've got it barricaded. And they're like, hey, these are the guys that have been giving us food and helping us all week. And they're like, oh, hey, these guys, yeah, let's make room. You know, just like smiling at us. And then they look at the camera, you know, and they smile at us. We walk right on out the front gate. It's like, thank you, Jesus. And, uh, and then it was, uh, we went, we traveled home the next day, not because we were afraid to be there, but that literally was our last day of 10 to be there. And we found out, we saw pictures in the news the next day, the whole place had been burned down. All the tents and everything had been a mess that night. And so we just praise God for his provision. Prayer does make a difference. And we thank you for the years that you've prayed for us. And then when I think of Colossians in this chapter, Paul is writing this group of people, and he's telling them, yeah, I, once I heard about you, I really kicked up my prayer life for you. Now, if somebody says that to you, do you take that as a compliment? Now, you should. Those of you that said yes and amen, you know what it's like to depend on God. And those missionaries who say, somebody says, I've been praying for you. Somebody came up to me today and said, you know, we have a bunch of missionaries. I have it running through on my app. And that's who I pray for every day. And he says, and look, today, your name's on the list and you're here. And so I know people are praying for us. To me, that thrills my soul. But somebody walks up to you and says, brother, I'm praying for you. Your first response usually isn't, well, thank you. It's like, why? What'd you hear? And Paul is writing to the church at Colossae to say, I'm praying for you, but he doesn't want to be misunderstood as to why. 
And so he begins the book like this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae. Not only a compliment, but a doctrinal statement. And one of the things that amazed me about the book of Colossians, what I've gone through at this time, is the amount of theological respect that Paul has for his hearers in this book. And here's why. We're going to see it in a moment. But he says some deep theological truths, and he just tosses it out there like a reminder, like, you know what I'm talking about. Where when he talks about them, let's say, to the Corinthian church, he says it and says, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. And I I get a sense from reading this book that Paul had a respect for the saints at Colossae, for their maturity, and for their growth and what they had become. So he says, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, Watch this, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Two things that Paul said he heard about them. Now, was Paul in Colossae? Was he at that church and said, here's what you told me about yourself? No, he's somewhere else, and he says the information about you, your reputation has gone out and reached me over here, and here is what I'm hearing about you. First, your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want to be known as a church that has faith in Jesus Christ? And I want you to know, you do have that reputation, When I have been in Romania, we have 28 churches that support us. Some of them have never contacted me at all since we've been on the field in 10 years. There are about four or five that keep regular contact with us, and we absolutely know that they are praying for us, and this is one of them. And I've used some of the things that you have done for us as missionaries on the field as examples to our Romanian church. This is how you treat God's uh, missionaries and God's people and God's ministry. We've talked about the faith that people have. They're known for their faith in Jesus Christ, but also their love for God's people. Do you see the vertical and horizontal in this statement? The vertical, they have faith in God, but it also goes horizontal, love for God's people. Now, I've talked to some people, generally church people, who say that church people are sometimes hard to love. Don't giggle too loud. Everybody would be wondering, what are they thinking of me? But i got to tell you something. I've been in a lot of churches And I love God's people. They are wonderful people. There's an accusation that God's people are sometimes judgmental, and really those people that say that are generally, not always, generally in sin and don't want to be told they're wrong. 
They're really saying God is judgmental, and he has the right to be, by the way. But God's people are not. And we've gone through things with our family, and we're open about that. Our daughter Jessica, when she came back to the States, wandered from doing what she should do for about a year. During that time, she ended up pregnant. She called us on Easter Sunday after she didn't know, but our whole family was fasting instead of feasting for Easter. And we were praying for her, and she called and said, Dad, I've made a mess of things. I really need to turn this around. And she has. And now she's actually helping other girls who've gotten in the same situation. And um, it's been really a wonderful thing. God has done so much in her life. She is a spokesperson for the Crisis Pregnancy Center uh, that helped her out. And, uh, and we actually have the, our grandbaby from her, Bella, is with us this weekend here in the nursery because uh, she's with her sister on a little mini vacation. She's working so hard as a single mom, uh, works a full-time job, going to school full-time, graduates this May, involved with the church. We're just so proud of her. And that has been the response everywhere we've gone. We have never, from the time we were praying for her before her repentance till now, never heard one word of rebuke and condemnation against us or against her for the situation. It's always been, we're praying for her. you know. And when she turned around, amen, praise God. What an encouragement. God's people are loving and forgiving and compassionate. Don't let somebody, don't let Satan convince you otherwise. But that's what the church of Colossae was known for, their faith in God and their love for the people. And Paul is encouraging them, starts off by saying, the message of that has reached me. Your reputation is being made known. You're an example to other churches of loving each other and having faith in Jesus Christ. And then he tells them a little bit about that faith and love. And I really wish I had time to go through a couple chapters of the book because this theme of faith and love, faith and love, keep coming back up. It's a recurring theme through the book. When you read it next time, look for that. You'll be amazed at how often that comes up. But in verse 5, it tells us where that faith and love come from. It says it's the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Where does this faith and love come from? from the gospel message and its effect on our life, from the hope we have of eternal life living in heaven when all of this gets washed away. And I don't know about you, I can't wait for it all to get washed away. And I don't mean literally with more rain. My goodness, if we had the rain this year. But I mean when we're done with this. I can't wait. And because we have that hope that comes through the gospel message, we are freed to have faith in God because of what we know is coming and love for God's people even when they mess up because we mess up and we want them to love us anyway too. 
And so when we understand the gospel, God forgives. He still calls sin, sin. He's not saying sin doesn't matter. He's saying sin matters. But you can repent and God forgives and continues to love and heals and takes you the next step and makes things in your life more sure. Maybe not all the money and finances things for sure, but your life and your hope in the future is 100% sure you know you're forgiven. And we have that blessed hope. And that frees us up to be more loving and caring with one another and to love each other and have faith in God. He says, the faith and love that you have that has reached, your reputation has reached all over the world comes because of your confident hope in the gospel message. I love the way he takes it from this personal It's the true message you heard about. And then in verse 6, it's the message that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit. In what same way? What fruit? Faith and love. The same gospel that worked faith and love in you It says, let me read it again. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Did you know that God's gospel does not only work in Battle Creek? And in the same way, it can produce faith and love in you. I've seen that in Romania. The same gospel in a completely different culture. People that think way different than you do. And yet the same gospel produces in them the ability to have faith in the future because of what God has planned for them and love for God's people. And from Romania, we've been in many countries that surround Romania, taking the gospel with Romanians on missions trips. We've been into Turkey and Bulgaria and Ukraine and Serbia and Czech Republic and Moldova and Georgia, not the state, but the country. And we've seen God's gospel have the same effect everywhere. Isn't that amazing? And he's telling them, This reputation you have has gone out, but it's not limited to you. It's spreading because of the gospel message. And you are an example that it can happen. And he's encouraging them with this. In verse 7, he kind of, I love the way he, he takes it personalized to them, takes to the world, and then narrows it down to an individual where he says, you learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant. Aren't you thankful for Epiphras? And they're all going, yes, I'm glad that individual came and told me so I could have the gospel message and understand it. And he's, he's narrowing it down. And I think he's doing that to remind them how important it is for you to be that Epiphras to somebody else. Wouldn't it be sad to get to heaven someday and say, I'm glad I'm here, but nobody else is... Like, glad that I shared the gospel with them. I'd rather somebody come running up to me and, Tom, 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 I give Jesus all the credit, yes, but I'm so glad you shared the gospel with me. 
What, what a chance to rejoice with them over Jesus Christ together. Be somebody's epiphras. Tell them about the gospel message. And that's what Paul is doing. He's reminding them. He's making it very personal. Now we get to verse 9. And he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. So instead of just saying, yeah, I heard about you and I'm praying for you, really, what for? He says, let me tell you something. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to tell you you're not doing enough. I'm not here to beat you over the head. In fact, I'm here to encourage you and say you're doing a great job and your reputation has gone out. But from the moment I heard that your reputation was good and that you were strong and that you're setting an example and you have great faith in God and you're demonstrating love for God's people, that is when I really began to pray for you. Because first of all, when you're doing well, who else notices that? Well, Jesus notices it and he's happy. But the enemy notices too. And he's going to try to rip that joy from you. I wish I had time. I just preached a sermon series on peace. I wish I had time to go through that with you. After hearing the songs this morning, I almost, if I'd had my notes with me, I'd have switched gears. Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, is telling them, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm thinking, all right, now Jesus, how long has he existed? Forever. All right, so he has a long history of, let's call them life events, things that he's been through. Like creation, Jesus was there, yes? The fall of the angels? The sin of man? The Tower of Babel? The flood? He had great events, he had sad events. But he has an eternal number of events because he's without time. And yet, when you take all of an unlimited amount of life events, I think the saddest one for him was the day he had to take the sin of the whole world of all time and carry it on himself. And on that saddest day of his history, which is eternal, he not only had peace, he had enough to share. How do you go through difficult times and have not only peace, but enough peace to go around? And Jesus did. And some of the answers are in John 14, and I don't want to preach it to you today because I would get sidetracked. I'm already getting sidetracked, can you tell? We need to get back to, where was I in Colossians? But um, the whole point is that Paul said, for this reason, I want to pray for you. Now, let's see why. For this reason, verse 9, I've not, uh, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God, now here's his prayer, to fill you, to do what? To add to? To add to the knowledge of Jesus, but to just give you a, a morsel more? To fill you up. Did they have some of the knowledge of God? 
Absolutely. They had enough that it was encouraging them to, to be examples. And he didn't just say, I pray that you will continue in what you're doing. He didn't say that. He said, I, I'm praying once I heard how good you're doing, get this, that you'll want more. Now, I tend to think, and I don't mean this as an insult to you or to me or to the churches, but I don't know if we have the same reputation they had. Some, yes, yeah, some good, and, but they were known throughout the known world of that time. I would tend to think that they might have actually had a little more commitment and maturity than the average Christian today. And yet Paul looks at them, and he's not rebuking them. He's saying, you have not arrived yet. He's not judging them. He's saying, you've done a great job. You have a great reputation, but don't stop there. You think the walk with God is good now. There's more. You think he's been good to you so far. You ain't learned nothing yet. I mean, that's what he's trying to tell them. And he says, look, for this reason, we haven't stopped praying. We continually ask God, listen, to fill you up with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That, my friends, is a deep theological statement. And he doesn't dwell on it. He assumes they know what he's talking about. I'm not going to make that same assumption. I want to show you what Paul is talking about. Let's go back a couple pages to 1 Corinthians in chapter 2. I really wish I had time again for... This is the benefit of being a pastor. We get to study all this. You only get to hear a part of what we study. So I have to pick and choose. Um... But all, even chapter 1, he's talking about the difference of Christ's power and his wisdom and the world's wisdom. And, but I want to narrow in on chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, he's now explaining that statement to the Corinthians. I mean, he's making the same statement that I want you to be full of the knowledge of the wisdom of God that comes from the Spirit. But to the Corinthian church, he's going to go into detail what he means and why this is important. I think the Colossi church already got it. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Because they're coming to nothing. Right? That means the leaders, the wisdom of this age, what is common sense, is not the wisdom that Jesus had. Let me keep reading. Verse 7. No, we declare God's wisdom. Now look at the statement. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Why doesn't the world know the wisdom of God? Is it simply because they won't accept it? Brothers and sisters, it goes deeper than that. God hid it from them. 
They don't even have it. Oh, God wouldn't hide the truth. When Jesus rose from the dead, and he's walking down the road to Emmaus with two disciples, did he tell them who he was? No. And what were they sad about? That Jesus is dead. Oh, really, am I? And he didn't reveal to them. Instead, what does he do? He says, well, I know you're sad, but let me point to what the law and the prophets said. And when he pointed them back to Scripture and described what had happened with what had been prophesied, before they knew it was him, they go, oh, he's alive! They believe the Scriptures. And then he says, you know, as an added blessing, let me reveal to you and open your eyes so you can see who I am. There are times God hides something to reveal it at the right moment for a purpose. And here he said, I've got all this wisdom that works, but I've not given it to them. I've hidden it from them. Why? So that when I give it to you, people will see the difference of the way they think and the way you think. And that's for our glory. Glory. That means it's going to make us look better. Now, it may not necessarily look better in their eyes. In fact, what do they call us? Fools. They say it looks like foolishness. But they can call it foolishness until it works and theirs doesn't. It is for our glory. He only gives it to us. Now watch this. Um, none of the, verse 8 now. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood the wisdom that comes from God, they would never have made the choices that they made. For it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. And no human mind can conceive the things that God has prepared for those who love them. It's a truth hidden. The hope we have in the future, man can't comprehend. Verse 10, these things, these are the things God has revealed to us, where? By his spirit. Now that's starting to tie into what we are learning in Colossians, but hold on. He's talking to the Corinthians. He needs to explain what he means by that. And so let's look at this explanation. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Name one of those things he's talking about. I don't think we can. Because as deep as we know about God, that's not even deep when it comes to God yet. But the Spirit searches the deep things about God. And it goes on. For who knows a person's thoughts except the own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. How much does the Spirit of God know about God? Everything, even the way he thinks. Look, I've tried to figure out how God thinks. And I give up. Just ask Job. 
and his friends if they know how God thinks. I just believe he's doing what's right, and I let God think the way God thinks. The Spirit searches the things of God and knows even how God thinks. Now watch this. This is the comparison. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Look, they're not closely related, but just slightly better if it's from the Spirit. There is an opposite of the way the world thinks and the way God thinks. They are foolishness to each other. It says, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. That person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot, what? Cannot, is incapable of understanding them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, listen to this, have the mind of Christ. Who knows the thoughts of God? The Spirit. Who is the Spirit in Christ? The Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit of God, who knows the thoughts of God, is the Spirit that is in the mind of Christ, so that Christ knows all, and what Spirit is it that teaches us? The same Spirit. What excuse do we have for not being a little bit more wise than we are? Now remember, I'm not saying that is a rebuke. No more than Paul was to the Colossians. He says, you're doing great. But when I realized how good you were doing, that you have a taste of it, that you're headed the right direction, I wanted to start praying for you that you would be filled up with the knowledge of his will that comes from the Spirit. Simple statement in Colossians, but a deep theological truth that I am ever so grateful for. Now, why do we want to be filled up with the knowledge of his will? Look what it says. And back in Colossians now, chapter 1 and verse 9, where he says, I've continued to pray for you. It says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Big statement, and he keeps moving. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in a few more good ways. Is that what it says? In every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, which by the way, we're going to need living with the people who don't get it. And why be patient with them? So we can be at peace? Or because those are enemies that need to be won over? 
and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Another deep theological statement I don't have time to go into. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Chapter 2, I just want to mention this. Well, first of all, let me, chapter 1, verse 26, when he's talking about, um, uh, and I want to end with this portion of Scripture. He says, now I rejoice. Verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I, and this is a, a little tough to just follow the first time you read it, I think. This is, uh, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. When you first read that, like, what could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Did he not complete it? We'll get to that in a moment. But as he explains that, he says, for the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become a servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So again, he's saying, you have some, but there's more. Don't stop yet. Verse 26, look at this and see how he explains what I just said from 1 Corinthians. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Isn't that wonderful? We have that hidden truth of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of what is to come. And what he's saying here in these verses, when I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh, I fill up, I, I, I bring it to completion. In my flesh, I bring to completion what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the body, which is the church. He's not saying that, that Christ didn't finish his work. Did Jesus Christ finish his sufferings? And what was his suffering? On the cross, so that our sins could be forgiven and washed away. He set the example. He set the way that it takes suffering to benefit people. And he says, what I rejoice in the fact is that I get to step into his shoes and continue that needed suffering for the benefit of others. This is a wisdom that doesn't make sense to the world, but it makes complete sense to those who know Jesus Christ. That we put others first, not ourselves. So church, my challenge to you today is if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, and you've walked with him your life. I don't care how old you are. And you've increased in your knowledge of him. And you have a good reputation for being a church that has faith in God and a love for his people. My challenge to you today is don't stop there. And I don't mean it as a rebuke. It ought to be an encouragement. Because what is happening here happens all over the world. The gospel is that powerful. And you can trust it, and you can believe it. 
And my challenge to you is, God, open up the floodgates. What else do you want from us? 